Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. What you're about to hear is a session from the Jaipur LitFest 2022 Digital Edition, and it's called My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Indra Nui in conversation with Aparna Piramal Raje. Hi, Indra. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to start with a humorous anecdote. Um, I have actually interviewed probably over 100 CEOs, but not one of them has said that they volunteered to spend the night in jail. Now, you actually had an incident <laughs> in your book where early on in your career, you were, you know, um, you, you well, you can tell us about it, but you did volunteer to spend the night in jail. Well, you know, it's an interesting story because in retrospect, it's funny, but when it happened, it wasn't funny. I was at a client in Wisconsin and I wanted a hotel room, but there was an air show going on in the region. So there were no hotel rooms for about 30 miles around the city or this town. And uh, the choice was to go to a town and get a hotel 40 miles away or go home to Chicago and come back the next day. So I thought I might as well go home to Chicago and see my husband, then come back the next day. So I started speeding down the road. And uh, in Fond du Lac, which is a town in Wisconsin, the police pulled me over and said, you speeding, um, you know, mightily and uh, here's a ticket. The ticket was some big amount, some $150 or whatever. And they said they only accepted Visa. I only had American Express. And I said, I'm sorry, I only have Amex. He said, cash or Visa? I said, I don't have cash and I don't have uh, Visa. So he said, follow me to the uh, police precinct. So we went to the state uh, police precinct and the guy was trying to figure out what to do with me. And then I spotted the jail cell there, which was beautiful, brand new. It had a bed, it had uh, attached bath, it had a door that was not open. And I said, I tell you what, since you tell me that I have to pay the fine and my husband can't come here until tomorrow to give you the money, why don't I just sleep in that jail cell? <laughs> uh, so you can just put me there and you know for sure my husband will come in the morning and pay the uh, jail, uh, uh, you know, the, the fine. Uh, I thought it was a funny way, not a funny way, an easy way not to drive three hours to Chicago. The guy looked at me and he said, go home and come back tomorrow and pay the money. Because he realized that I was genuine. I wasn't a fake. The next day morning, first thing I paid the money. But, you know, I tell you, sometimes you just have to adapt to the circumstances. <laughs> yeah, so it's a definitely a story of adaptability and thinking on the spot. But it's also a story of putting yourself in these physically demanding situations, which you also refer to quite early on in your career, you know, how you in, in almost injured yourself carrying so much of equ equipment. So what is it about that motivates you to push yourself and, you know, be so driven even early on? I, that is one question I've been asking myself a lot, Aparna, because I think from the time we were kids, that was drilled into us to say, Satan has worked for idle hands. You know, you only have a finite amount of time. Use it wisely. Learn. Lifelong learning is important. If you stop learning, you'll atrophy. These are the messages that my grandfather always uh, conveyed to us nonstop. And, uh, uh, you know, so when, you, when I sit quietly, I go, my God, I just wasted five minutes. Let me go figure out what I can do to uh, help somebody change the world, enrich my own brain, something of that sort. So I think my experiences in my childhood have wired my head and brain differently. And so um, I just feel like I have to 
be constantly reading, studying, doing something, contributing, uh, commenting, doing something. I just have trouble sitting idle. That's why meditation has never been part of my life. <laughs> so that's that's really interesting. And so it's obviously a story of hard work and grit and being, you know, so driven paying off. But were there times when you feel you weren't actually getting the kind of outcome that you would have wanted? And how did you motivate yourself in those times? Because that is very inspiring for people who, you know, struggle with it. So sometimes you reach dead ends or you feel you've done a great job, but people don't accept your uh, findings or they don't want to change. Um, you know, nothing in life is easy. Just because you've done the homework doesn't mean they have to accept it. Uh, and doesn't mean that everybody is just waiting for words from you to change. So you've got to be, have enough humility to know that there's dealing with humans is a whole level of complexity when you're trying to make change or, uh, you know, get them to think of, uh, you know, view events the way you want them to view it. Uh, and so what you've got to do is whenever those sorts of uh, <clears throat> uh, obstacles come your way, you've got to reconceptualize the situation. If you honestly believe that what you're doing is right and change is necessary or people have to think differently, reconceptualize the situation, come at it differently. But then you've also got to understand, Aparna, when the time is not right to push your ideas. There's always a point when, you know, you reach a point where people go, we're just tired of hearing about this. Just stop. And that time, stop. Come back after a little while, but in a very different context. So one, one of this is uh, being focused on yourself versus being focused on changes to the company and the betterment of the company or the organization that you're part of. If you think of everything outside in, you'll know when to back off. So that if you think of everything, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please go ahead. No, it actually leads very nicely to my question on, you know, this, you, you talked about humility, but also being very relatable. Um, so like what, what you were just saying sort of talks about how you can relate better to other people and make sure that your ideas are well received. Um, one of the things I really felt in the book was that you come across as a very relatable person um, in various dimensions, whether it's your ascent on the corporate ladder, the whole obviously framework of being a working mom. Um, so was this something conscious or do you think it's one of your personality traits that's allowed you to succeed? I don't think you teach relatability. I think you either like people or you don't like people. And I think you either are sensitive and empathetic or you're just a tone deaf, one of the two. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are shades in between, but uh, I genuinely like people. Uh, I'm not an extrovert though. I don't like to socialize a lot and go to parties. I just don't do that. But I like people. When I interact with people, I genuinely like them. And, um, um, I'm willing to do anything to help people if I believe that I can help. You know, sometimes people call me or write me and say, get involved in something that's a problem for me. I don't know them. I, I know nothing about them, but they will demand that I get involved. I can't do those things. There's limits to what I can do. But where I think I can help, where I think that uh, I can make a difference, I always do. Always, always do. I go beyond the call of duty. So I think uh, empathy, uh, people awareness, reading body language, all that comes from a place deep inside you. It's not something you go to a course and you learn because then you're always doing checklists. Did that person give you eye contact? How many minutes did they give eye contact? That's not how it works. It's like feeling the lack of eye contact, feeling the lack of communication from that person when you sit in a room. You know, the interesting thing is in a corporate environment, 
Sometimes many of us are better at reading the tea leaves and people. But sometimes when you come home, you become a little tone deaf. <laughs> and you're reminded to say, hey, how is it you read people so well in the corporate environment and at home you become tone deaf? It's just that you know, you're spending all your time reading people. When you come home, you let your hair down. Yeah. Uh, so speaking about people um, and this whole idea of you know empathy, how do you think you were able to shape the corporate culture at Pepsi? You you wrote that it was ambitious, it was friendly, it was fun. You really enjoyed it as soon as you walked in, and you did use the word cherish in in your um, you know uh, the whole PYP PWP program. Um, so what do you think you've been really able to um, you know build on in terms of the culture and enhance during your time? You know, PepsiCo was already a great company. The culture was already terrific. Um, but I wanted it to be even more human than it was. Um, it's youthful, it's fun, but I wanted it to be even more youthful and even more fun. And I wanted everybody to feel like it was their company um, and, and bring their whole self to work. So um, I wanted to get to know people individually. So a lot of people would feel free to come up to me and tell me what the issues were. Uh, the interesting thing, a story I tell you is, uh, on the weekends, where especially when we were preparing for a major presentation or so, uh, if the teams worked uh, in the office over the weekend, they would send mail to my home, because my home was 10 minutes away from the office, two or three times a day. A bag of mail or a big envelope of mail would show up. And I heard from the guards who would bring the mail that they would all fight amongst themselves who's going to go deliver the mail. Because they wanted to deliver the mail because I gave them a chance to chat with me. And I knew all the issues that they were facing. One guy would tell me about uh, his wife who's sick and his daughter who's going to be a doctor and the challenges he's facing. But here was somebody who could share his real concerns with me, but he wouldn't just walk up to the door and say, I've got something to talk to you about. I'd look at him and say, thank you for the mail. And I'd say, you're all right. You're looking a little down. He says, Mrs. Nui, I've really got to talk to you. I've got to talk to somebody. But the fact that I got him to talk about this issue has got a weight off his shoulder. And if I could help him, I don't know his daughter, but if I could help him, I would. So it's one of those things where when you break down the walls between the top and the bottom of the company, it and creates a wonderful environment. And do you think that this is an aspect of female leadership or this is something that was you try to do? Do you, you have you found male leaders doing it? I mean, because it sounds like a story of, you know, I've been a CEO in my family business too. I've had a lot of people confiding in me and opening up to me. And sometimes I can't help but think that it was because, you know, there's somebody a little bit more empathetic on the other, at, at the other end of the conversation. It could be female leadership. I would argue that women tend to do it more than the men, but not all women do it. So I wouldn't make a blanket statement and say female. It's those leaders that genuinely care about people. Genuinely, they have to really view uh, your talent as talent, not pair of hands. They shouldn't say, you know, so-and-so is just a worker. See, it's a person who is making a difference in that production line day in and day out. So when you have a different mindset about the job they do, it's very different. Uh, I had a letter uh, last year, I think. I went to London Business School. And when I came back, uh, the lady who hosted me there, the young girl, the young woman, um, wrote me a letter saying one of the things that people were surprised by and felt great about is when they were talking in groups with me and somebody else joined the group, 
I made it made sure the group was expanded and I put my arm around them and sort of felt made them and feel included. I didn't even realize I did it. But instinctively, I could not imagine somebody joining a group of five or six of us chatting and being on the outside. So I caused the group to uh, increase in size, but so that they don't feel it's too big. I stretched my arms out and sort of included them. And so you realize that you end up de developing body language, actual language, uh, words, physical actions that show that you're empathetic, supportive, inclusive, all of those things. Yeah, just on that note, I mean, how would, how is it going back to the workplace now after two years of everyone being um, offline? Uh, sorry, everyone being online and, you know, actually demonstrating it. Uh, not maybe I'm not, I'm not just talking about your own experience, but what you see in people around you and workplaces around you. Yesterday, I was in the Boston Consulting Group offices doing a talk about my book. And in New York, most of those people have come back to work. They love it. Absolutely love it. People crave for that human connection. But what's different now is that if they need the flexibility, they can have it because the technology allows it. So I think that with the progress of technology, we can cut down the travel, we can have some flexibility between how to juggle all the priorities of home and work, and we can still have that human-to-human -human contact and develop corporate culture, you know, exchange ideas, have the warmth. I mean, there's something to be said about warmth. Life is not about interacting with avatars. That's not what life is about. Yeah. Life is not about you and the screen and uh, the metaverse and 3D figures. Life is about some human interaction. I'll be honest with you, Aparna. I miss shaking hands with people. I miss giving people a hug. You know, I miss that warmth when you meet people. And so I think uh, what we're beginning to see is the great comeback with people saying, we're going to come back, we're going to have the human interaction, but in a different way. That's yeah, what we're beginning to see. I'm sure JLF would be happy to hear that and have you at the festival <laughs> again. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard so many good things about JLF. Really, I wished I could have been there in person after maybe another year or so, but I've heard fabulous things about it. Yeah, it, it is quite magical. Um, so coming back to Pepsi and this performance with purpose, you, you've also, you obviously talked about how the two reinforced each other, but you also mentioned that there were times when there were trade-offs. So could you give me an incident in... Uh, when you know you looked at purpose being more important than performance or an incident where performance was more important and how did you handle these and how did you feel about these kind of situations it was never one was being more important than the other it was always once you sort of think about the various aspects of purpose that you have to implement you have to implement it it's not subsumed it's not uh, uh, it is not subservient to performance what it is is timeframes. What can you get delivered when? So for example, if you want to increase the use of recycled plastic in a soda bottle, which is very hard because you know, soda carbonation will go away when you use recycled plastic, you need technology breakthrough to be able to use higher and higher levels of recycled plastic. So I can't just say I'm going to throw a lot of dollars against it to uh, accelerate uh, the use of recycled plastic to 50%. I can't do that. You need the technology breakthroughs first. So you have to pace your investments so that it's timed uh, to allow the scientists to do the work and then get breakthroughs. So it was never a trade-off, it was more timeframes. Uh, so sometimes we might say, we're gonna get to 30% recycled plastic by 2015, and we don't have the breakthroughs as yet. So what happens? You say, I didn't do it. Not because we didn't have the monies. 
We didn't have the scientific developments. So I think it's got to be looked at not as a trade-off between performance and purpose, not as a trade-off between performance and doing the right thing by society. It's really thinking through how to make both happen with a level of credibility and a time frame where you know you're going to get results as opposed to greenwashing or pretending you're making progress when you really are not. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to have that um, lens of the time frame. Yeah. So speaking of technology and investments also in the future, I was thrilled to um, hear you write about design. Um, that's mm. not something that a lot of CEOs necessarily always talk about, though design thinking has been, you know, more part of a vocabulary. Um, how has that changed your outlook and your thinking in general? So you had um, a very iconic meeting with Steve Jobs, and then you also invested in facilities in design and in, in hiring a, and building a really good team. Um, so how has that affected not just, you know, in the design of, let's say, your products or your overall communication, but your outlook as a leader and as a thinker? No, I don't look at design as a function design, but I'm looking at what attracts me to products, what attracts me to experiences, what attracts me to change my lifestyle and behavior, what's nudging me to different things, what's nudging me to spend uh, you know, $100,000 on an iconic car. Um, it's not just nobody goes and buys a high-performance car with just a big souped-up engine. It's the whole package, how it looks, how it drives, what kind of an image does it give you? all of that stuff put together. So in the past decade or so, since I got introduced to design in such a profound way, everything I look at, I look at it with a view to design, the form function, the ergonomics, the uh, passion it creates in you to want to keep engaging with this product. Mm -hmm. When do you get turned off? You know, so it's one of those things where my view of store shelves, my view of how a store looks, my view of, Every piece of thing I touch is towards is is a view towards uh, does it evoke passion in the consumer in me, and I think you've got to think about stickiness of the product or the experience to the consumer. That's what your focus should be because you spend so much money getting people interested in your brand or your product. If they walk away, it's tough. And stickiness comes from a deep understanding of design, design elements, design characteristics. So do you think that design can also change the way you look at strategy? Does it change the way you look at leadership? Because one of the things I'm trying to understand is that design thinking is really a way of life. So just as how we all you know, started off thinking as engineers, and then we get into management, and these are all ways of us to approach business life, design thinking is also another prism through which we can look at it. Has that evolution at all happened? It's happening. It's happening. So I'll give you one example, design of organizations. If you go back and look at any design of organizations, it was hierarchical, pyramidal. Um, and for time immemorial, organization design has been that way. But if you really were to think about organization design in terms of what needs to get done, the culture of the people, the new uh, Gen Zs coming into the workforce or the late millennials coming to the workforce, you would think about organization design very differently in decent decentralized clusters change happening in different ways. So the whole notion of organizational design has to change. So this is not a product or a service. Exactly. This is an organizational structure has to change in profound ways. Um, you know, how you design the workplace of the future is going to be a challenging design 
uh, a big de design challenge for people. This is not about where you put the tables and chairs. Um, it's not about hoteling versus offices. That's not what it is. It's who's going to come and went to the office? What's the optimal way to build culture? That is a design challenge. How much real estate do you need as a consequence? What should be in the real estate? Where should childcare be located? And even in a childcare system, are you designing for just for the children to be dropped off and picked up or and just cared for during the day? Or are you designing the structure to expand the minds of the kids, to make them, you know, make the foundation for citizen, citizenry actually happen? Um, and if you go look at videotapes of Japanese childcare centers versus Finnish childcare centers, you'll see how profound they are versus childcare centers we typically see. And so I think design thinking is so profound. It permeates so many aspects of our life. We shouldn't just think in terms of you know, a diagram of a, a sleek car or a beautiful Apple computer or a mouse. We should think in a profound way. Yeah, just putting people at the center of it and then building the organizations or building um, whatever that you're trying to build around it in, in, in a more strategic way. So coming to care, actually, um, this is this book, as we sort of discussed earlier, is um, a manifesto, right, in, in terms of infrastructure, systems, policies, things that organizations can do, things that governments are do, can do. So what, in your experience, um, is, is the book ha having an impact on, given that you've spoken to so many audiences and engaged with so many people? How, do you, how would you like to see this change? Wonderful thing is this issue has been talked about for a couple of decades uh, by very prominent people. Over the last, I would say, five to eight years, most of the research think tanks have done a tremendous amount of work to develop programs, score them, think, uh, lay out what needs to get done, who needs to pay for it, what it's going to cost. They've done a lot of that work. What's happened is they haven't all convened together to say, therefore, how do we make this a human issue and not a political issue? and get this message out to all of the people that can drive change, CEOs, state leaders, community leaders, federal leaders. How do we get the message out to everybody in a unified way as opposed to multiple people talking about it? Um, and then uh, drive for change. We have not yet convened and started to look for change in a unified way. And we haven't yet really co-opted corporate leaders to help us drive this change. I would argue that a lot of the men in power, because most of the powerful positions are still held by men, have to come to the table and look at this whole care equation in particular as a human issue, as an issue that's going to allow us to bring a hell of a lot of great talent to our workplace at a time when talent is going to be the single biggest competitive advantage of most companies. Single biggest advantage. Companies, countries, states, everybody. So they need to come to the table and say, how can care become the single biggest uh, driver of tapping into the complete talent pool available in the country or the region? So what is inhibiting them? Is it the question of that they're worried about the impact in terms of you know, people's productivity? Although obviously I think the argument you'd be making is that it does increase productivity in the long run, but you know, short-term losses perhaps. Is it a question of saying that who is gonna actually take the lead? Is it you know, private sector players or is it large corporates or is it government? So what exactly is holding up 
um, given that given that there has been so much thinking, as you said, for two decades in this, why is it first thing, happening? That's a great question, Aparna. I think the first thing is that um, people have got to understand that family is not female. Family is family. People have assumed that today family is female, and therefore it's the female's problem to figure out what to do. That's not the case. Family is society. Family is the future. Family is all of us. So we have to start moving the thinking to that first. Second, there has got to be a recognition amongst men that women represent a potent talent pool. They're getting all of the top grades in high schools. They're graduating with terrific grades in colleges, even in STEM disciplines. Women are hungry. They want the power of the purse. They want economic freedom. And so draw from the entire talent pool. Don't draw from just half of the talent pool. They have to come to that recognition. Third, they should look at women as just another talent as opposed to female talent and treat them differently. In fact, treat them like lesser citizens. So I think in many ways, the problem we are facing is um, actually engaging women in the workforce, which in fact leads to the need for care, poses a different sort of a challenge because age-old ways of behaving in the workforce, age-old ways of interacting with people in the workforce have to change. And people are sort of nervous and worried about what those changes mean for them. Some people are prepared for it, others are not. I think it's non-threatening, but people still feel very, very threatened by that. Threatening and also I think the question is who is responsible for it? You know, so I think the boundaries of where the corporation ends, you know, I'll, I'll just share an example. Today, I was talking to somebody who's CEO of a company and one of the senior people working in that company has a child who's having some health issues. Now, is, is the CEO of that company, the person I was talking to, responsible for helping th that person, you know, to get, get their child the medical care that they need? Or is it something that's left to the employee? So I think there, there's, there's no clarity about these answers. People do come, you know, it's, it's not that today the government is legislating on it or it's, it's up to the individual leadership to actually take those decisions. And I don't think, as you said, that there is a unified approach when it comes to these kind of things. You have benefited well, but from- if you can help that employee access medical care, why not? Because today society is not equal, it's not equitable. Uh, you do need to have contacts here and contacts there to get quickly into medical, the medical system, especially if you have somebody who's pretty sick. So if you can help, please do it. Because I look at this and go, when you spend so much of your waking hours at work, when think about your day, you spend the bulk of your active waking hours at work. And then you spend a large percentage of the time at home thinking about work. <laughs> All right. So given that, uh, given that the job has such a huge uh, priority in your waking hours, why not the job acknowledge that and say, hey, you know, let me make it easier for this person. He, he or she contributes so much to the company. It's a small thing for me to help this person because it's a human issue. Yeah. So, so that's the thing. I think that when you look at it as an economic issue that this person is an employee, this person is working for the company, and therefore, if their family is taken care of, then the company will benefit, then that's exactly. an argument that a CEO will understand. But I think somewhere you have to realize that these issues are human issues, as you said. It's a good thing. You have thing. to bring the two together. Yeah, exactly. That this is a human thing. It's not, you're not just doing it for an economic productivity issue. You're doing it just out of the fact that, you know, you're the person who can actually help. So, 
I almost feel like saying, Aparna, we should always walk a mile in the shoes of the person that's struggling. And say, if we were that person, what would we do? What, what would we expect from people around us? Um, and sometimes when you do that, you realize that your answer typically is, thank God I'm not in that position. You know? Well, that's the difference between sympathy and empathy, I guess. So That's the difference between a human and a person who's a robot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So on that topic of workplace mental health, I mean, I write about mental health. So um, workplace mental health is such a big topic now. Do you see this getting recognition from CEOs as uh, something they need to invest in? I think universally we should talk about how to de-stress the workplace. Workplaces are stressful, but there are people who can handle it, people who can't handle it. We all talk about de-stressing the workplace. By doing what? Um, I mentioned in the book, um, sometimes we have artificial deadlines. Then we force people to work very hard. So I'll give you a simple example. If a particular set of material has to come to the CEO on, let's say, the 10th, the head of the division wants it by the 7th to review it. The people under the division president is now asking for the material four or five days before that so they can review it. So pretty soon the team that's working on it really has one month before it goes to the CEO, but they have to get it done a month earlier um, because it has to go through multiple levels of review as opposed to everybody reviewing it together before it comes to the CEO. You get me? So what happens is this organizational pressure causes a lot of chaos in organizations and people are working ridiculous timeframes. The second thing is, and I was, a, um, I was a problem in this area because I pushed for perfection. I believe people can be pushed to do better, better work. I was, and I thought others should too. But at some point you've got to say, how do you make the trade-off between um, the acceptable versus the perfect or good enough to versus perfect? Does that last 2% make a difference, the last 5%? My belief was I always had to show people how to go to a higher level of performance because others may not show them that, uh, you know, movement to the high level of performance. So I pushed and pushed my people. In retrospect, maybe I could have backed off a bit. So, uh, so and so we have to think about all this. So that's a challenge, right? Like basically saying that there are workplace stressors. And I think a lot of companies are doing things like offering counseling or therapy and, you know, flexibility for mental health days and those kind of um, options, but really, when as long as the stressors exist, um, these are just more like band-aids to the to the. They're not really solutions. I think there are stressors in the workplace that exacerbate mental illnesses, but then there are genetic mental illnesses that we have to cope with. The thing we have to be very careful about is the workplace is still the workplace. To a certain extent, the workplace can accommodate and address a lot of the issues, but if you haul every one of your problems to the workplace. The workplace cannot handle it. So it's a very fine balance between what can be handled in the workplace versus what is really something that you've got to handle on your own. Yeah, it's as I mean, you, that's really interesting you say that because I, actually I'm bipolar. I've just written a book on on that. Um, so I've, I've seen in, in, in my own experiences of working that some workplaces I could, you know, I brought too much to the to the workplace and it wasn't the right fit. Others it actually worked out quite well, and my immediate line managers and I could work out a situation where we could, you know, manage. Exactly right. So, 
Yeah. So speaking about this whole idea of mental health and vulnerability, you speak very briefly in, in the book about your own moments of vulnerability. You talk about, um, you know, having to go into the bathroom at, at times <laughs> when you felt it was all getting a bit too much and, you know, you kind of let it out. Um, share a little bit more about that, Indra. Let us see a little that side of you. You know, uh, if I told you that everything was smooth sailing for me, I'd be lying. There were times, even when I was CEO up and up, where people would talk over me in the boardroom. Uh, people would sort of give me that look which says, what the hell is she talking about? She's a woman, she's too emotional kind of a statement. Or they'd roll their eyes, okay? Um, sometimes when things like this happen, I've seen men utter four-letter words and throw things around and say, this is unacceptable and walk out. I couldn't do that. I couldn't mend my frustration the way men used to. So I'd just say, excuse me, I'd leave the room. I'd literally go to my bathroom, let out a few tears of rage. And to myself, I'd utter all the words I wanted to utter, whatever they were. And then I'd put some makeup on and come out. Uh, unfortunately, society has not accepted that women can also behave like men. And the last thing I wanted to do is push that boundary. I, was, I wasn't ready for it too. And so um, I uh, came back and um, I had my calm collected around me. And um, I just say, appreciate everybody's input. I know some of you don't agree with what I have to say. And some of you um, through your body language indicated that you perhaps thought my thoughts were out there, but this is where we need to go, just accept it. So is this what you would advise young women, you know, looking at leadership, looking at entering the workforce and how do they actually manage their emotions? How do they manage their frustration? Um, we've all had our share of the locked bathroom. Okay. I, I don't, I'm not at all. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I totally empathize with you there, but how do young women who are going to be entering this workforce deal with this kind of uh, challenge? I have two daughters. And so I don't want them to be treated differently at all at the workplace. First of all, uh, I believe in total equity in the workplace, total equality. So when I was working, I was almost the only woman. So I had to be careful because I wanted to keep my place as a woman who was at the top and be a positive role model. In today's world, uh, I think young women are in workplaces in larger numbers. If they see bad behavior, it should be called out right away. They should just turn around and say, hey, can you let me finish? Will you stop interrupting me? What's with you? And young girls are doing it these days. Um, they should uh, stop people who are rolling their eyes in front of them and go, hey, what's your problem? Why are you rolling your eyes? And if they don't do it, the head of the work group should do it. Uh, no, nobody should suffer in silence anymore. Nobody. At the same time, I'm not suggesting you stand up there and throw things around and utter four-letter words or break into tears. Don't do that either. What you don't want is for people to associate you with you uh, sort of uh, errant behavior, uh, erratic behavior. Okay, what they should say is, this person has got a backbone, tough as nails, uh, but when pushed, knows how to push back. So maybe what we're hoping for is better behavior on all parts. <laughs> on <laughs> definitely on men, all parts. On all men, men and women. So, okay, um, coming back to your childhood, um, your mother used to ask you and your sister about, you know, what would you do if you were prime minister of India uh -huh. and you, you would have to make these speeches. So I'd like to ask you today, what would you do if you were running for political office in the US? Which department would you choose and, and would you run for office? 
First, that's the, the answer is very, uh, very short. I will never run for office and I will never be in the politics because that requires a different skill and a capability which I lack. It requires diplomacy. It requires a lot of consensus building. It requires accepting slow progress as opposed to rapid progress. That's just not me. I'm willing to help behind the scenes, any political party, do something for the country. But when it comes to actual politics, I'm the wrong person. Well, you did say that PepsiCo running, running PepsiCo is like running a small republic, though. You did say that. But, but it's a, um, a place where you have control, where you have authority. You can make change happen. People listen to you. Mm -hmm. uh, you, can make, you can change our people if they don't listen. You see? So it's a very different sort of a republic. It's an efficient republic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a statement about society and government, I guess. <laughs> that's, you know, that's how the political system works, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Tell us about your daily habits. Um, leadership, I've noticed, you know, from all the CEOs that I've met is so much about what you do every day. I know that in the book, you mentioned that you don't sleep very much. Um, but apart from that, what are some of the habits that you've adopted that really, you, you know, help you every day to be successful? I read, I'm a voracious reader. I read everything from abstracts to articles, to books, to looking at YouTube videos, to learn topics. So I'm constantly reading, absorbing, understanding all the new areas because in the world today, change is the only constant. And all of us remain excited and alive because of change. At the same time, change requires you understand what's going on, otherwise you're gonna be overwhelmed by it. And so I'm constantly trying to keep up with the change. So, uh, yeah, you read on, you read books, you read Kindle, Audible, what, what sort of, uh, what format? Mostly hardcover books. I like hardcover books. Sometimes I read uh, books on my iPad or my Kindle, but I would say 80% of the time, I like hardcover books. Uh, I read the news every morning at 4 a.m. I'm reading all the news and catching up with papers around the world, news, my curated news, everything. Uh, I listen to music, a lot of music. Um, I... Uh, um, watch sports when um, you know my favorite teams are playing but that's usually on mute because I'm reading while I'm watching sports so I'm always multiplexing and now now with uh, now that I'm retired I can spend more time with my kids and my husband so I'm actually enjoying spending more time with my daughters yeah, you don't sound very retired though Linda I think you're involved with a number of organizations in many capacities I am, but you know, it's like, I don't have a quarterly earnings pressure to worry about. Sure. I don't have to have my life program for three years at a time. So, you know, it's a different pace. It's exciting. It's fun. I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. And uh, I think it's, PepsiCo was great while it was there. And when I stepped down and decided to do something else, I'm having the time of my life. Okay. So we just like to, we have a few minutes left. So I'd just like to end with a rapid fire round. I'll just ask you sure. a few questions and whatever comes to mind. Uh -huh. When it comes to business, um, strategy or execution? Uh, great strategic thinking with the best executors to make it happen. You're not answering, you have to choose one. <laughs> uh -huh. You can't. Strategy without execution is worthless. Execution without a grand strategy is useless. So. All right. Okay, then you're not going to be answering the rest of them. Execution or purpose? You have to execute on an overall purpose strategy. Look, any one of these things by themselves can actually be detrimental to the other. So you have to think very, very carefully. Okay. Coming to care, um, would you rather see greater male involvement in care, whether it's childcare or elderly care, or would you rather see private sector involvement? Like which, which right now, if you had to make a choice? 
I would say private sector involvement because most of private sector is men today. They have mm. to step up and say, we've got to do this. And male, um, I'm sorry, private sector involvement or government involvement, which do you think could be more effective? This is the one thing that has to be a partnership because everybody doesn't work in private sector. There are a lot of people that work for government, that work for small and medium-sized enterprises that cannot afford to put this in. So government has to work in partnership with the corporate sector to make it happen. And women in leadership, um, would you rather see more male allies or would you rather see these women's forums? You've written about both of these in the book. Today, I would say more male allies because men in power have to come to the table. They just have to. So you can have all the female forums you want, but if the men in power don't mentor, support, promote women, they will always be frustrated. Women's forums will call, form and then they'll uh, you know, dissolve. So I think we need men to come to the table. This is a plea from me. Okay, a plea is a, is a, is a good word. <laughs> it's a good word to yep. add on. Great, I hope that we have a lot of male allies watching this in the audience and responding in the same way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Indra. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aparna. It's been a privilege chatting with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.